0: Hello, you tuning in to Psycomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity. Psych comedy. I'm your host Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, and in part two of my conversation with the brilliant American comedian J. L. Covan who became a Twitter sensation during lockdown with his amazing and hilarious Trump impression, we go back over his 17-year career to see how, despite the online success, it is stand-up that is his first love. Stand-up, I mean, it's obviously at the core of your, you know what makes you happy where, where where does this where does this kind of trace back to you know it's uh, i mean again a couple of other things i picked up on your your blog and you, you say i found stand-up comedy a sanctuary to to express and or escape some of the worst things in my mind and in my life which is obviously very powerful and you know I mean, just insightful. That that sentence. The worst things in my mind and in my life. Um, And there was an interesting story about how you got into it, wasn't there? With at at college, Uh, law school, law school. At at law school, where you said you were depressed, but then a priest came along and gave you a an idea. Like the Exorcist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's
1: comedy, basically, for me. I mean, and this is from going to a shrink, and also just you know thinking more about your life. Um, you know, movies and comedy, my, my family, um, I'm not a child of divorce or anything, but I was a child in a very tumultuous household growing up, uh, and laughter, whether it's sitcoms or going to a movie was really the most calm time consistently for my family. And I was a violent little kid and they made me go to a child psychologist. My school made me go to a child psychologist in fourth grade. So I went there for two years, and I don't think it's a coincidence that around sixth grade is when I first started doing impressions. I don't remember being particularly funny before then, but around fifth, sixth grade, when I started doing impressions of teachers, of movie stars, that, and I, I've I've made this connection later in life where I think it's probably a bit of sublimation, where it was like I took some of that aggression, and sometimes I made fun of kids, but obviously... Making fun, doing impressions is, a, is safer than punching some kid. And I think that's where I began this lifelong, oh, to make friends or to get out aggression, jokes are a good way or, or a safer way or a way less likely to get you suspended from school. And that continued in college as a bench warmer on the basketball team. I wasn't liked at first, but then I started doing impressions and making people laugh. And then that's how I made friends with everybody on my team. And then law school came about a more serious time, a more isolated time. And I think, you know, I was in a long distance relationship living on my own and I was just very depressed. I was not doing great in school. Um, You know, my grades were fairly like, this was the beginning of second year of law school. My grades were, were terrible. And I was living on my own and just, just bummed and I couldn't get out of bed. And I, I didn't, my girlfriend who was in medical school, I think quickly diagnosed it. And she knew, she felt like I would be somebody, uh, resistant to going to therapy, especially on uh, you know, $0 salary as a, as a student. Mm. So she called a priest at Georgetown who then visited me one day. And I was like, who are you? And he was like, I'm father so-and-so. And we ended up having like regular lunches and just talking things out. And it kind of came about that I needed sort of a hobby. Mm-hmm. And that's when stand-up comedy, I was like, well, I'm funny. And maybe I maybe I could try that. And after a few months, I tried it the following summer and loved it. And I think maybe it was, and my grades my grades got much better. I was much more relaxed. And it was clear that like, Unlike other social situations, whether it's school or a team or family, where you're like, I can make them laugh, and that's how I'll ease tension or make myself feel better. Law school was very isolated. So it was almost like I had to go to strangers now to make them laugh. And then I would get that feedback and that, hey, when I'm feeling down, I'll write a joke about feeling uh, depressed or hating school or whatever comes to mind, relationship struggles. And then that's the release, and that's the you know, and it gave me something to look forward to. If I was bored or bummed, I said, oh, but I'm going to an open mic tonight. And, Mm. you know, uh, but as far as worst things in my life, that's later. Um, My second album was called Diamond Maker. And my first album, Racial Chameleon, was very, very happy. I think the spirit of it was a lot of impressions, lighter material. I'm still very happy with it as a first album. But Diamond Maker is the shift for the rest of my career because <laughs> I went through an awful relationship oh. and the only way I could express it without just being enraged and, and just super sad at the same time was comedy. And, and it's a good thing I wasn't famous because going to open mics, I probably said cunt on stage uh, more in six months than I've ever said in my entire life and i knew but but i wasn't anybody i was just at open mics nobody cares who you are if i'd been famous you know people would have been cell phone videoing going look at this vile material which is why i'm always so angry when people judge open mics or stand up comedy as like mm. workplace dialogue <laughs> but i because of my anonymity i was able to work through that material and then once i could see women laughing at the way i was presenting this pain I said, okay, now I've mastered it. Now I'm at a place where I can present my real feelings, but I become good enough at presenting them that people who might be offended or think I'm chauvinistic are laughing because I've now packaged it the right way. So I'm, mm. I'm exercising my demons, but in a way that some people who might not, if I was less skilled, they're now laughing at it as well. And yeah. that, And then that became you know my comedy career still had light whimsical stuff still had impressions but like it was a deeper mining of my own thoughts and feelings and i had a horrible relationship you know a decade later that if you've listened to all of thoughts and prayers there's a yeah. 15 minute story track on the second disc mm. that was very real and i mean i don't think i've i've cried in public i think probably once as an adult and it was in the middle of chicago when mm. i found out that a very close friend uh, had done me dirty. And because yeah. I was, once again, comedy had to be the vehicle because I can't walk around crying all the time and I can't go and mercilessly beat someone up. So yeah. what's the, once again, and that was the, you know, making that funny and telling it in a way was such a, a proud moment for me in a weird way because it was like, I can really turn. Yeah, I dealt with it you know that, that album was four years after I found out, so I had time to process it for real. I didn't I didn't go into the uh, comedy club the next night and go, <laughs> "Watch this, guys!" <laughs> it took a long time for me to process that and to deal with losing a friend and yeah. having somebody lie to me for so long, like uh, the the person that I was on and off again seeing. Yeah. But to turn that into a great bit was just it. It felt not to use a cheesy word, but empowering. And I rarely use mm. that word because it felt like I can take, and like I said, not as a crutch, not as a crutch to escape dealing with it because it was four years later. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't burying it under comedy. I had dealt with it and now I could turn it into comedy and something, if not positive, something humorous. Mm. Um, so that's what I meant by turning bad things in my life into, into comedy
0: yeah it's lovely and uh, and as you say those are the things that take the 10 years plus of work to uh not just come out onto a comedy club and either want therapy or call that person a cunt yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it's beautiful so um so yeah we talked about comedy i guess rescuing your mental health at college maybe when you first started and at and, and, and various points uh, it, and that's only from hindsight, you know. Yeah,
1: it wasn't like in the moment. I, I'm always wary of people who say like comedy saved me, and I'm like, you've been doing open mics for two months. How do, <laughs> how do you know that? That just like is a romantic <laughs> ideal you're spouting. <laughs> me, it was from looking back, you know, ten years, fifteen yeah, years, retroactively, course, yeah. going, oh, that's what it was doing. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was using it
0: for. Comedy saved me after one gig. I'm better <laughs> now. I'm cured. <laughs> I don't need therapy. I've done one five-minute spot, um, but there is there is a trade-off, isn't there? There's a trade-off, obviously, with comedy and mental health. That when when I'm not when I'm not doing comedy, I'm suffering greatly um, because I'm not doing comedy, and that's the thing that makes me happy. But um, you know, it comes it comes at a cost, doesn't it? Comedy, and again, from your blog, you know, it said you know i will be will be a I'll be a stand-up comedian at all costs. You know, I had cost myself relationships, financial stability, physical health, and happiness in pursuit of making myself a real stand-up comedian. So again, it's this trade off, isn't it? Uh, with mental health, you've got to do it, but you're going to suffer mentally by doing it. And
1: I wish it, I wish it wasn't, it wasn't an, you know, that's not a conscious choice. That's me looking back and saying, once I realized I was really good at this, it, it felt like, um, You know, I had an an ex, one of the exes that I've spoken of, um, was a a highly competitive athlete in her youth. And it came to a point where it didn't work out, you know, but at 14 or 15, when it doesn't work out, you have time to adjust. But I knew when we were seeing each other, it still bothered her. You know, it still was a source of, of, wow, what if I tried a little harder or what if I had... And she had said to me, I remember she said, your dream is still alive. Like your dream can still happen. Mine ended in high school. And I I, I sometimes think about that. I try not to think about that person too often, but that stuck with me where it's like, if I quit, you know, it's sort of a goofy way of thinking about this. If I quit comedy, I am a failure. I have failed. If I never quit, I can only be failing. (laughs) But I have not yet completely failed. There's always a chance to turn that around,
0: and for me, it's 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 was was that what happened? Sorry, just before you released that viral video, then you you were you were quitting, but not quitting. You were kind of quitting, but not really. You couldn't fully quit because that, as you say, would be a failure,
1: right? And I think what I was doing was saying I'm reprioritizing. The fact that I was making the videos shows that I was not like, I am now a serious person who will no longer contribute comedy content (laughs) to the world. And I had just written a pilot and I was still emailing clubs, but I was just saying, I can no longer make this the priority, which is in, in you know, and once again, those same people who will say comedy saved my life are the ones who will say, if you love it, you can't quit. And I'll say to those people, I've done 10 times what you've done in terms of exposure, content, and effort. Mm. You don't get to tell me, like, by some storybook methodology wh- what it takes. Mm. You know, like, is the person who dies at 60 living alone with no money in the bank, but who's still trying? Is he some sort of noble hero? Or, or, or did he prioritize incorrectly? Or is it somewhere in between? But this idea of like, you've got to keep going for it is something a lot of people say who either will never make it or who've already made it. It's never the people in the muck, in the trenches who are going, <laughs> you can't quit. No, we're all like, yeah, this sucks. We're, we're, we're <laughs> st- stuck. This is terrible. Like, I totally get it if you quit. But the A-room headliner or the open miker who started a year and a half ago, they're always telling you, well, if you love it, you can't quit. It's like, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> you can get divorced you can marry somebody because you love them and then you can get divorced what <laughs> makes comedy something that cannot be divorced <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: nice so um yeah i mean thank god thank god you have never quit and uh, as i said oh, listening back listening on those albums and that millie Vanilli stuff and but several bits is kind of perfection, in a way, for me, oh, in comedy you. <laughs> beautiful. As I say, that silence that you get with that bit, it's like, well, you can't make this funny. Yes, I can, and not only can I make it funny, but I can make it funny just basically saying exactly the same thing, but two <laughs> minutes later, when I put it in context, it's beautiful. Uh, this,
1: I am not kidding you, Th- that feels better than like a million hits on Twitter, because it's <laughs> like, that's, that's what it, I mean, I don't know, that's, yeah. That's what it is, it's, it's, it's about making something, challenging yourself and making people laugh. And it, yes, it's a little bit of a show off move to be like, watch, I didn't intentionally dig a hole, but I did yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I I jumped out of it with a huge applause break <laughs> and it, it, yeah yeah it's yeah. so it's By saying the so same good. thing it's, right.
0: great. it's it's great um so we're going to play in a clip now not that clip so that mm. uh, go and listen to thoughts and prayers um to get the to get that bit but here's a bit um that I also love and is 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 your is your, your closer I guess for this uh, album so I hope we're not <laughs> not giving away uh, nah. Too much, but I just love I just love this bit So this is a bit a bit that's rebooted from your first album that you mentioned the uh, racial chameleon So this is about the how modern American history can be explained by the Rocky films Just to give it the context because we we're just gonna play the end bit uh, the kind of reboot also
1: a top five bit of my career Yeah, love It's it. the first great bit I ever wrote and then to get
0: to reboot it for sort of the trump era felt felt really good <laughs> yeah so in short the bit is about how rocky's opponents mirror what america was afraid of at the time correct right. me if i'm wrong i've uh, released so you go through them all so uh, creed wasn't it an articulate successful black man uh, russia communism a kind of fringe white guy from oklahoma so you went through the <laughs> war what america was scared of at the time and then in this clip you say with trump this pattern has now hit a snag the point of this is it tracks America. Except now it
1: doesn't. Because I feel like Trump winning is like if Paulie were the heavyweight champion. He beats his sister. He's racist. He steals money from Rocky in Rocky Five. That's Trump. And like if you were to say to somebody, oh, who wins the title belt in Rocky 8 Pauly! But isn't Pauly... 80 and racist and has never boxed in his life yeah
0: (laughs) but we wanted something different (laughs) um so you know i saw i saw your i saw your face then when i was kind of obviously complimenting the Milli Vanilli bit and I get the same when another comedian is complimenting my bit I'm like not that I've ever had five million views but like that is, that means more to me than all the kind of the once or twice that i've gone viral <laughs> not compared to you on uh, on my stuff but um how do you feel about support that you get from the comedy industry so you mentioned with this um with this clip you were supported and retweeted or kind of shared by a couple of comedians which i guess feels great as well i've ho- i've heard you talk in the past about a lack of support from fellow comedians so maybe a, a lack of support from headliners that didn't you know, maybe help you in the way that you maybe would help people or will we'll help people when you're now the headliner and you'll be recognizing it. Or maybe you'll think, fuck them. <laughs> they never yeah, helped me. Payback should pay why back, it? bitches. Why should <laughs> I should I help you. And uh, there's, uh, there's a nice story, isn't there, about Patrice O'Neill being the exception to this. Um, right. And I guess we, you know, I mean, having Patrice, I mean, it's great. You've gone right to the top there in terms of, having someone to learn from but I think we all can look back on these moments where it's like you supported me man and I re- will always remember that and if I ever get huge I will not only thank you forever but I'll also pass that down to someone yeah. else in the in the same way so um Patrice O'Neill I mean wow and, yeah uh, it must have been Bad. a huge uh, huge tragedy when he uh, when he died
1: yeah that was i mean i was familiar with him before i worked with him but not to the extent that a lot of my friends were so i got to host for him at the dc improv in 2010 and uh it was great and i did well and um and i always thought that you know as somebody who was i'm, I'm six foot seven uh i have a georgetown law degree i i don't come off as sort and i'm you know now in my early 30s, I don't come off as the upstart uh, pipsqueak going, hey, <laughs> what can you teach me? I kind of look like a giant man <laughs> who has his shit together, which I do. Yeah. But it took somebody. So headliners, I've I've had great conversations with headliners and I don't think anybody owes anybody anything in this business. You don't owe, but I, I think psychologically, I was not the type of person that most comedians would look at and say, oh, I should mentor this young person or I, mm. this guy is a talented guy because it's just, the presentation when a guy's looking down on you literally <laughs> don't necessarily think this guy needs help in the business. Yeah. But Patrice was such a, a physically big guy, not as tall as me, but also a six foot four and very big and also confidence to spare, arrogance to spare uh, unjustifiably. And uh, one of the top comics of, of his era yeah. and I opened for him and afterwards, he was ripping me to all the local comics. But in a very, as, as any comic would know, a very inclusive, the way he would like, you know, he was saying, this guy comes into the green room and says, oh, I normally feature. And he norm- he was going off on these riffs, ripping me. But it was hilarious. And it was a, some comics might have been like, he was so mean to me, but I knew what this was. This was, this was razzing a teammate. This wasn't, mm. fuck you. I hate, like, get out of my face. Mm. And the two things he did During that first week, he said, on one of the subsequent nights of the shows, he said, I really like that Rocky bit. Not, you know, the original. I go, oh, I didn't do that. He goes, yeah, no, I didn't. I I checked out some of your stuff. And I was like, whoa. In my head, I'm like, ah, that's great. Yeah. And then, or he had checked it out before when they told him who was emceeing. He might have checked it out then. But he, he communicated to that the first week. And then he asked for me to host again his next time through. Now, I lived in New York. I was not local, but my brother lived in D.C., so I was like, I'm there. Like, yeah. I don't have to put up a hotel. I'll make it a family visit. So I'm the intro on two of his albums um, from those two weeks working with him. And I thought to myself, this is somebody now. I am not somebody who asks a headliner if I can work with them. I've, I feel like that's in asking if you're invited to the wedding. You, you either are or you're not. They Feel free to ask me, but if, if you don't, I'm not going to push it. Yeah. But because he had asked me back, I was gonna say to him, "Hey, if your if your middle your friend can't make a gig, would you consider emailing me for the gig?" Because I now that he's asked me, I don't feel awkward pushing myself a little bit. Yeah. Four months later, he had the you know he had the stroke that killed him. Oh. Um. And I don't know that would have fostered into any big relationship, but but he had a, a respect for me that I had not gotten a type of respect that i had not gotten from other headliners not pleasantries and hey you're funny and hey nice working with you all that i have had almost no bad experiences with headliners in my career but this was different this was the first time i had gotten like maybe i could build a relationship here not out of pure opportunism but maybe a mutual respect and and this is a big man who doesn't look at me because of his stature physically and in the business and in his own mind did not view me as some, Ooh, this big, he was like, you're still a piece of shit opener, you know, like (laughs) in in a way that would help me in a way that would foster a relationship. Whereas other people would be like, Oh, that giant is very funny. Yeah. So,
0: (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And this, this, I I guess, ties into the last thing I want to talk about today with you, uh, you know, talking about the support from individuals or support from an industry as we emerge from this lockdown period and all clubs everywhere are closed you know you have this internet fame and um, which is amazing but we all still need that support. We need that infrastructure around us. We need people looking at your stuff and going, JL Covan, he's great, but check out his albums. He also should be headlining, and I'm going to be supporting him now, whether you're a club or a promoter or an agent um, in terms of doing that. Um, how do you view the industry kind of now as we emerge from lockdown and everything's closed? And I guess your particular place in it i mean obviously it's a it's a big especially thanks
1: to our great leadership here we're going to be closed you know (laughs) extra which is which is so great the irony of getting famous for playing trump during the pandemic but unable to escape (laughs) trump or the pandemic it's like a black mirror episode
0: um but it's that infrastructure and support that is necessary for you right now more than ever i guess isn't it because it's like now i'm good to go and now i've got the fan base but you still need that you can't just turn up. I mean, you could hire a place on your own and, but you can't, you know, get that level of success that I guess you're, you both want and you're absolutely ready for right now. If, oh, the, thank indus- you. if the industry will allow it, if the industry is, I mean, in this country, it's not coming back. And as you say, America's slightly behind the UK, but um,
1: yeah, it's, it's very frustrating because um, I've had people say to me, they're like, Hey, if the clubs don't book you book your own theater tour. And I'm like, but I like clubs. Like, don't get me wrong. If I get to a level in my career where it's like, oh, the theater can, you know, and I'm saying if I'm at some Jim Gaffigan level, you know, oh, well now I'm doing theaters because clubs cannot charge enough money to get me what I'm worth. You know, so I get moving to theaters at that point when a gig is $200,000, I understand, but I want to do clubs. That's, that's what raised me as a comedian. So I want like, when people say do your own theater tour, I go. I don't really want to right now. I, I I've worked so hard in the clubs to get to headline in the clubs. I don't want to bypass them if I can if I can help it. I want them to book me, and I want yeah. my face on that poster, and I want to be in that different place to know that I've been promoted in in the places that I've I've worked. And maybe that's a little bit of ego, but I also I love comedy clubs like. Mm they're fun. I like being in them. I would go to them more if I wasn't a comedian. (laughs) Mm.
0: Yeah. And do, do you worry at all about the industry that clubs are closing, but both the clubs closing COVID and also the nature of the way the audience has shifted to online and enjoying your clips and the very reason that you're internet famous right now, do you fear at all that this is going to lead to the death of clubs the death of people wanting to check out your albums you know it sounds like oh that's not going to happen but for the first time in recent weeks i've been like is there is there a shift is there a real shift in society now between kind of uh, a society that produced ck as he said chappelle chris rock and wanted to check out all his stuff all his albums go to see his live shows give him the time go to see an hour and a half of him, to thinking, well, I love that jail Kovan, because I've seen six of his two-minute clips and that's enough for me to be his fan because I've got to check out the cat falling in a bin as well. I haven't got time to check out his stand-up, you know?
1: It's, it's I know there's going to be a lot of that, but I really hope, I don't know, but I hope, I, I feel like one of the criticisms I've had of the comedy business is stunt booking where it's like, this WWF wrestler will do story time. These yeah. YouTubers will will appear here live. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the same way I feel about news, where it's like, when I see a story about a celebrity drunk driving, I go, you guys should be giving us more vegetables than you are. You're giving us candy. <laughs> and I feel like comedy clubs need, and have abandoned a little bit their role in talent development. Maybe not in LA and New York, where they have to produced a lot of different comics and you want a stable of comics but in terms of the road mm. you just need somebody who can sell tickets and yeah. you know i've heard this many times where it's like oh i had never heard of you guys like if i'm with a, a headliner who's also not super famous i had never heard of you guys but like you both were amazing or incredible or what a fun show and i go that's why maybe next time b-level celebrity is here <laughs> maybe you skip that one because maybe they're only here because they're a B-level celebrity. You should be questioning, Hey, why is Tom Smith who I've never heard of headlining? Maybe it's because he's a really good comedian and you'll be (laughs) pleasantly surprised. And there needs to be some sort of, I think, nurturing of that. Maybe sometimes you just go to a comedy club to discover a new comedian, not to validate the famous people that you've heard of. I understand there is a place for that, but I think part of it is there needs to be this, and I, I, I understand they own clubs. These are not, club owners are not necessarily rich people. Some of them might be, some of them may not be. Yeah. Some of them aren't. But there is, there is a little bit of responsibility on the part of clubs to make sure that stand-up comedy continues to thrive and not just celebrities doing appearances. And when I see YouTubers and, and Instagram stars booking nights at clubs, they might be funny, but like the truth is, there's one Bo Burnham, okay? <laughs> I think Bo Burnham is a genius and I think it's telling that he directs and writes movies now. Like even he was like, yeah, I reached the top of stand-up and now I'm doing <laughs> other things. But he's a guy who, for people who know me, they would have thought I would hate Bo Burnham on principle. He's a YouTuber doing videos. The guy's a genius. He is a once in a generation talent, in my opinion. Yeah. But now, the lesson from that, I think, in some ways, was not, hey, Bo Burnham, we should look for the next Bo Burnham. It's like, let's just look for the next internet person who can sell out, and that's a weekend that doesn't go to a comedian. That's a weekend that doesn't go to somebody who's maybe developing a real act. And I don't know where the line gets drawn, because it's not my business, and they, ha- they have to sell tickets. But somewhere, comedy clubs have to nurture comedy, not just sell tickets it's easy for me to say that but that's that's my fear is that with all this celebrity no comedian that knows me or looks into what i've done is going to think oh god they booked the they booked (laughs) the trump and they'll see and a real comedian who knows anything about me will go oh no 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 the dues have been paid the skills are there this is no different than if he had booked a sitcom and then was able to become a headliner from that after putting in all that work but there are other people who are going to book things that don't have the chops. Um, yeah. You know, that, that also get that opportunity.
0: Yeah. And that will be the amazing thing when you are headlining these gigs in hopefully a couple of months that the audience will be coming along and going, oh, it's the Trump guy. And oh my God, he's fucking awesome at stand up as well. How did that happen? You'd be like, right. <laughs> Just like, I didn't learn stand up in three months since I got this internet phone. And i will take that like those people i'm fine with if yeah whatever yeah.
1: gets you in the door um the people who i won't be okay with though will be the ones 10 minutes into my 45 or 50 minute set who scream
0: do trump <laughs> <laughs> i'll be get out of here <laughs> you'll get you eventually this off you copied this off sarah cooper <laughs> <laughs>
1: right there'll be pre- there'll be picketers outside my show <laughs> saying uh, free sarah cooper <laughs>
0: Right, JL. Thank you so much uh, for for joining you. today. I mean, you are a brilliant stand-up, and as I said all the way through this, I just love your ethos, your desire for purity, um, and your work ethic over seventeen years, just putting so much out there. And um, you know, and uh, you know, people say you kind of about making your own luck, um, but it's um, it's that consistently good content, you know. So undoubtedly, you deserve the success that is about to has already come your way and um, will come if your way. Say,
1: one thing I'll say, though, that's strange about this is I feel like I am proof that you do need luck. Like, Because the truth is nothing I have done in the last four months is any different than what yeah. I had done the previous 17 years yeah. or 16 and change. The difference is a pandemic hit. And I think that my joke about that, and I have I already have written forty-five minutes on my sort of unique. There's, you know, there's a handful of people who've had my experience. Sarah Cooper would be one mm. where it's like into a greater degree, but in terms of who's really gotten famous, whose lives have changed and could tell a good story based on COVID. Mm. And I am one of those people. And I think I have the chops to tell it in an incredibly entertaining way. But yeah. It's, uh, I needed a pandemic to break through. Like, like if that doesn't prove that my career required some sort of divine intervention or deus ex machina, I don't know what will. Like anybody who says, well, you worked hard. Yes, I was working hard right up until March 24th also when I couldn't go to work. If I had been going to work at my office, I'm not making selfie videos at my desk in a law firm. I'm just doing my work and going home. So the amount of catastrophe and change required for me to finally break through kind of proves that, uh, there was obviously something really working against my comedy career.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, what an incredible, incredible story. And, uh, thank you so much for sharing it with me on Psychomedy today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. So that is our show for today. Join us again next week for more Psycomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psycomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSC in psychology and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pop People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psycomedy. Please subscribe, rate, and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed and there's video clips and more at Psychomedy.co.uk follow us on social media at pod People uk at psychomedy at nathan cassidy and that jl covan jl thank you so much you're awesome lots of love thank you so much this was a lot of fun sorry if i was long-winded oh no you were great you're great <laughs> We'll release it over five separate episodes don't worry about that uh-